Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. This program and podcast always features unique perspectives from people who don't usually have the time to share their full life stories and thoughts. On today's program, you're going to hear 9-11 talked about from two vantage points you may have never heard. One from the Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke, Episcopal priest at Trinity Cathedral in Little Rock, who was actually at Trinity Wall Street in New York City on the day of the attacks. And you'll also hear from Sophia Saeed, Executive Director of the Interfaith Center at St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock. It's a special show. Thank you for tuning in. You ready? Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There, you'll read, learn, and make comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now it's time for Carrie to get all up in your business. This show, Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, began with Entrepreneurs in Mind, a platform for me, a small business owner and a guest, to pay forward our experiential knowledge in a conversational way. As with all new endeavors, it's had some unexpected outcomes. For instance, this show began with entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs in mind, but we found it has a much wider appeal because, after all, who isn't inspired by everyday people's American-made stories? Another discovery I find interesting is that many, many of my guests have a spiritual bend and the heart of a teacher. And last, that business in of itself is creative. My guest today is all of the above. He has an inspiring life story, knows a lot about creation, has a big heart of a teacher, and his spiritual bend is more than most because he's an Episcopal priest who has hailed from all over the United States, including Wall Street, that became ground zero when the Twin Towers fell. Today, we're going to visit with Father Stuart Hoke, who recently moved back to Little Rock, Arkansas, and became the assisting priest at Trinity Cathedral in downtown Little Rock. Dr. Hoke was born in Memphis but raised across the wide Mississippi River in Blyville, Arkansas. He is a Mustang. <laughs> but you hadn't heard that in a while. Having graduated from SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, he then went on to receive his Master of Divinity degree from the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Father Hoke spent most of his ministry serving congregations in Arkansas and Texas until in 1996 he got the academic bug and completed the Master of Sacred the Theology degree at New York's General Theological Seminary. For the next eight years, he would serve as executive assistant to the rector of Trinity Church Wall Street in New York City and missioner to St. Paul's Chapel at Ground Zero. I can't wait to talk to him about that. For the past 30 years, Dr. Hoke has not only been spreading the good news of God's grace, but also that of AA's 12-step recovery program. In his Ministry of Recovery, he has pioneered two nationally recognized courses on the church's role in the treatment of alcoholism and addictive illness. He is renowned for his workings with congregations and dioceses of impaired clergy. Dr. Hoke has now moved back to Arkansas, 
where he's the assistant priest at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Little Rock, and he continues his active participation and ministry in the 12-step recovery program. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke, Blyville, Arkansas. That means... Hello, Father. I forgot to say hi. Hello, Father. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon. Uh, Blyville, Arkansas, that means either your parents were at the Air Force Base, they were farmers, or they worked at the steel plant. Which one? My father was stationed at the Army Air Force Base yep. during the Second World War. Met my mother, who was the daughter of a, one of the first stores in the city, the Hubbard Furniture Company. Oh, you're so, kidding. So we were... And you were rich. The, we were just absolutely not rich, <laughs> <laughs> but we were comfortable. Yeah, you were the small-town furniture owner in a small Blyville, Arkansas. And you pronounce it correctly, Blyville, Arkansas. I have friends from Blyville. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Air Force Base, I think, has moved out, though. Air Force Base is gone now. The city's much smaller than it was when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But it's got great fertile ground. It's on the Mississippi River. Oh, you know, it's great yeah. farming country. Um, after reading about you, it seems like you always kind of knew you wanted to be a priest because you went to college to be a priest. You went to SMU? Went to SMU. I didn't, I knew I wanted to be a clergy person long, long time ago. I didn't tell anybody. That's not the kind of thing you tell your teenage friends, but that was, that. that's what I wanted. How'd you know that? Uh, well, my parents were active Episcopalians. We were in church every Sunday. The Episcopal priest in town, even in that little town, was always the educated bon vivant. He knew the... Uh, the what? His, the bon vivant. He yeah, was I see the these Episcopal who, preachers. They're uh, just so educated. What does that mean? He knew his salad fork from his entree fork. <laughs> he ate well. He took me to the opera in Memphis. Uh, just men like that, educated, worldly, who'd been around, uh, gave me a good model. And I said, I, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I did. So that's a lot of responsibility for yeah. you guys to follow in his footstep. Went to SMU. My father insisted that I be an engineer. I fixed that by making my first and only D in calculus. So that was the end of my engineering career, and I wanted to study religion and language. And uh, my father thought that was not a good idea whatsoever. So Latin, uh, I guess? Uh, Latin and Greek, yeah. Latin and Greek and, and religious studies at SMU, most exciting courses I've ever taken. After you graduated from college, you decided to go on and get a master's, and you went to Cambridge, Massachusetts. I did. It was the Vietnam War. Uh, I had a medical disability because I had tried to go into the service, and that was not possible. Went to Cambridge, Massachusetts from Dallas, Texas in the fall of 1968, right in the middle of it and was in Cambridge for four years doing all the riots in the colleges and the nation. Happened to be on the street when tear gas fall on two occasions. Really? So I really learned something about the uh, life of the church in the streets as well as in the church building itself. And it was, it was the war, and we were really doing whatever we could to see that the war could stop. So many of our friends had died, and so many more were going to die. So... Mm. We were very sensitized to that at the time. A great place for a theological education during that period. Did you work while you were there? I did. I worked, I was a, um, a, a chaplain, student chaplain at the Bunker Hill Community Mental Health Center, which was in Charlestown, Massachusetts. It was an Irish ghetto, it was called at the time. And my job was to go around and meet the community and introduce them to 
the health center as well as to some dynamics of, of spiritual living, spiritual help. And there was a lot of talk about alcoholism at the time because Charlestown was full of it. I wanted to know as much as I could about it. In fact, I got a job, my first job in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was a student chaplain at the Long Island Center for the Chronically Alcoholic. These were the skid row bums. And my first job there was to be an orderly. I helped clean them up after they got off the street. Were they Vietnam vets, a lot of them? Some of them, yeah. Some Seems them. like that's a lot of the homeless people are veterans of some sort. I think this is probably a great place for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke, assisting priest at Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. We'll hear about the role his New York City Trinity Church on Wall Street played after the fall of the Twin, of the twin Towers that became Ground Zero. Stay tuned. More to come. Friends of Dreamland are proud to sponsor Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Dreamland Ballroom, located on the third floor of the FlagAndBanner.com building in the historic Taborian Hall, is a nonprofit dedicated to bringing back the music, the history, and the party of the Dreamland Ballroom. Our annual fundraiser, Dancing Into Dreamland, will be a tournament of past champions to celebrate the 10th year. Mark Friday, November 15th at 7 p.m. on your calendar. The night will include a dance competition where audience members text their votes for their favorite acts, a silent auction, free hors d'oeuvres, cash bar, and your opportunity to experience the magic and imagine the music of the legends that played on the Dreamland stage, like Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, Louis Armstrong, and many more. Tickets available at dreamlandballroom.org for the 10th annual Dancing into Dreamland. Be a part of the history of Dreamland. I'm speaking today with Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke, Episcopal priest at Trinity Cathedral in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. Before the break, we were talking about how Dr. Hoke became a preacher, how he kind of always knew he wanted to be one, and uh, it's not really in your family, but it's in you, and that uh, it, it people in your life can really affect how you, how you grow up to be, and that you had a great example of an Episcopal priest in Blyville who really set a great example for you on how to be. And so now, after receiving your Master's of Divinity degree, degree in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you worked and ministered all over Arkansas and Texas before you moved to New York City and uh, 9-11 happened. So how did, the, how did you go from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Texas, back to Texas and Arkansas to minister? I was uh, ordained in the Diocese of Oklahoma. Uh, oh, really? By... Uh, hook and crook, I was invited by the Bishop of Oklahoma to be a part of that crew over there. And he stationed me after ordination in a church in Tulsa. I was there for two years, and then a man from Little Rock called me and said, I want you to come work over here. And the bishop over here said, I want you to move across the state line. So, Who was the bishop? Well, the bishop was Christoph Keller. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I moved to Arkansas, and this is home for me, and it felt so good. And I was at St. Mark's here in Little Rock for three years, and then I moved to St. John's Church in Harrison. And Arkansas? was there for six years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And St. John's in Harrison at the time was a very conflicted church, and I had grown up in a conflicted family, and I knew some of the dynamics of how to fix situations like that, so I employed them. Did you fix and, it? Uh, no. <laughs> well, they, they fixed me. <laughs> you can't fix humans. We're just unfixable. Yeah. Then I moved, I I had a call to a a big church in Texas, and I moved to Amarillo, Texas, spent 10 years there. After that in Houston, 
Uh, after 29 years in parish ministry, I got the education bug, and I thought I would really like to go back to school. Feared that I couldn't even write a footnote, but I thought, well, I'd love to do that. How anyway. old are you now? I'm 72. Not now, but I mean then when you decided to go 49. back. 49. 49, you 49. decided to go back to get a Ph.D., I guess, right? Yeah, got a, uh, a master's degree just to try it out, see if I could do it, and then spent the next uh, four years working on a Ph.D., like a Ph.D., an earned doctorate, yes, mm -hmm. and had no idea what I would do with that, but it's opened so many doors. And, really? Uh, just so many doors. It gave me the, a credential that I've needed in order to do some of the things that I've done. Uh, not only write, but preach and teach hither and thither. And the degree has helped do that. So uh, you so you left, uh, you were in Amarillo, then you moved to Houston to a really another big church. You got the academic bug. Moved to New York City. And you moved to New York City. Absolutely love living in New York. In, in your early 40s. Yeah. Uh, went in to my school late 40s. In your late 40s. Went to school for how long? Went to school for uh, six years until I was 55. That's when I was awarded the doctoral degree, and simultaneously got a job at Trinity Church Wall Street, which is the probably the biggest Episcopal church in North America, uh, as really? far as budget and outreach. And I've been there, actually. I went to service there one time. It may have been you that was there. It's been so long ago, because it was right after 9-11, and we went to church in there, but there wasn't hardly anybody in it. After 9-11, it was, it was scary what had happened. No one was coming down. Now it's packed to the gills Again. on Sunday morning. That's yeah, nice. Yeah. So many of our people died in the tragedy and so much fear about being down on Wall Street at the time. So it was, it had a blow it was a year before it was back in So you had swing. been there for how long when 9-11 happened? I was there for a year and I lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, took the subway to uh, my office every day. The office was about 75 yards from the first tower, from the North Tower. Where were you when the when the planes hit? I was on the subway when the first plane hit, and the subway conductor said, we are approaching Chamber Street, where you'll need to get off and get on the other side to take the local train to get to Wall Street. And then he said, stay on the train. There has been an incident at the first tower. And then he screamed, stay on the train. So all of us stayed on the train. We had no idea what was going on. Got off at Rector Street, near Wall Street, came up out, out of the subway tunnel. It was a beautiful day when I'd gotten on the train, and it was very cloudy when I got off. Uh, there was debris in the air. There were uh, women's clothes coming down from the sky. Uh, and it was, um, people were screaming. A friend of mine said, a small plane has just hit the first tower. Uh, let's go down and see what's happened. So I said, well, let's go. I mean, I always want to see what's see what's happening. And we went down, and if you know New York at all, we stood at the corner of Greenwich and Liberty Street at the entrance of the North Tower, watched the South Tower burn three floors, kept hearing people saying, it's only a small plane that's hit it. It's only a small plane. And yet we could see three entire floors engulfed by flame. And about that time, it was two minutes till nine o'clock, Another plane from the west came from out of the blue. It was right over our heads, a thousand feet above us. Hit the tower at an angle, right where we were standing, and the debris began coming down. 
And the woman next to me uh, had the most incredible question. She said, is this a setting for a movie? And oh my gosh. Uh, I, I thought immediately of Bruce Willis. And I thought, well, of course, this is one of his disaster movies. And I said, yes. And we just stood there uh, until another friend came up to me, shook me literally by the scruff of my neck and said, Stuart, run for your life. And it dawned on me I was in trouble and I, I ran for my life. And, uh, many didn't, but some of that debris covered some of the people with whom I was standing. Killed him? Mm -hmm. With whom you were standing? Not, not too far away. All of that debris from the impact of the plane and what came down, the jet fuel, and the debris. I ran into the basement of the American Stock Exchange, and then the church office was right next door, Trinity Wall Street. Trinity's been there since 1689, so it's been, a, it's been a fixture on Wall Street. Ran in there, and the rector said to me, the rector is the pastor. I was his assistant. And he said, people are streaming down Broadway, Broadway, the major street mm -hmm. in the city, and they're looking for shelter, and they're running into the church. Go over there and do something immediately. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, I don't know. Just get there. Go over there. So he spotted the organist, and he said to the organist, go with Stuart, go to the church, and you all do something immediately. People are coming in. And we went over, and we did a spontaneous, impromptu service of, of scripture readings and hymns and prayers, mostly as crowd control. Oh. You could hardly call it worship, and yet it was that too. Mm -hmm. And some really amazing thing happened in that 45-minute segment between us getting there and the fall of the first tower. And when it fell, the windows fell out of Trinity, the lights went off, people got under the pews, some of the people got under the pews. So we had 45 really good minutes there to, to sing and to pray and to, to read salient pieces of Scripture, like the 23rd Psalm. I read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall, shall not want. want. Mm -hmm. And there was a man in the congregation who did something I've never had done in all my years of, of ministry. He jumped up and said, do that again. Mm. And he loved, he loved that portion of yea, though, though I, I walked walk through, through the, the valley, valley of, of the death. It's very yeah. comforting. Yeah. It's yeah. so comforting. Yeah. He appeared again, but I'd never had anyone do that, especially in an Episcopal service. And, yeah, and right. I, uh -huh. Well, uh, no, I, I did make a huge faux pas at one point. I said, the next hymn we're going to sing, I was trying to choose very familiar hymns like... Mm -hmm. uh, Onward, Christian Soldiers. I, I, well, I wanted to do that, mm -hmm. but I thought twice about that. Uh, I said, the next hymn will be Nearer My God to Thee. Oh, well, yeah. this man said, no, no. not that one. <laughs> And if you're old enough, you remember that the first movie, the Titanic, uh, as the ship was going down into the drink, the little blast brass band was playing Nearer My God to Thee. Mm. Well, a bunch of the people in the congregation remembered that. Mm -hmm. And uh, amidst all of this cacophony and craziness and sirens and the darkening of the church, people laughed occasionally. And it reminded me of something about humor and humanity and humility and uh, we were really depending on, on, on God's grace to whatever would happen. But the humor was part of it, and it was, I think about that a lot. That was such a gift at that moment. 
I, I was really involved in that day, and I was, uh, when that tower fell, I was leading that congregation when some of them got under the pews. Uh, it was a, a, a moment of horror because the lights went out, it got dark. There was a woman on the front row who was screaming at the top of her lungs, Jesus, Jesus. There was someone at the back of the church going, anthrax, anthrax. What? And me thinking, well, is he prescient? What's he, what's he doing? Is he, does he a mind reader? And then the verger, the guy that handles all the services in that big church, he was going, shut up, shut up. <laughs> and it was my job to try to, to settle things down and to keep right on going and be faithful to what was at hand. And a policeman came in and he said, you all need to get out of here quickly. If that second building falls, and he told us what had happened, uh, this time... It, it may fall right on the top of Trinity. There are boats of all shapes, models, and kinds down on the harbor waiting to evacuate the island. So get down there as fast as you can, and, and people fled. I didn't realize people fled the island. They did. It's, the, it's now known as the biggest naval evacuation in the history of, of evacuations. I did not know that. Over over a hundred, maybe two hundred thousand people were. Did evacuated. you evacuate by boat? Mm -hmm. Where'd I you did. go? Well, I ran. What I did, I ran back into the office building before I went to the boat. To uh, we had a day school at the time, and it was early in the morning. We had one hundred and fifty children. Only ninety had been had gotten there that day. If the terrorists had come just a little bit later, so many more parents would have been in the World Trade Center. Mm. Anyway, it was a cold day. It was the first cold day of the year. Uh, staff members wrapped the little tiny babies and children up in their coats. And at a given signal, we ran down the street. We ran toward the Staten Island Ferry. And the second building fell at that, at that particular moment. And you've seen pictures probably of the dust ball that comes down the street. Mm -hmm. Well, it engulfed us. It was 240 miles an hour, I think it was clocked, that particular ball of terror, and it knocked everybody all over the place. So you all got separated. So you all got separated. We could hear babies crying, and someone said, am I dead, am I dead? Well, we picked, picked ourselves up, uh, got our bearings, and thanks to a wonderful young business manager at the, at the church itself, led all of us again uh, on the road to the Staten Island Ferry. And we got there eventually. And there were boats of all kinds leading people to uh, one place or another. The fascinating thing is two buses came down the sidewalk. You have to imagine all the streets were gridlocked. People had jumped out of their cars, even leaving the cars running. They were everywhere, but two buses came down the sidewalks, stopped where we were, city buses, and said, we can take your children and your day school teachers to shelter. We know a route up the Fed, um, FDR freeway. We will take them to St. Rose's in the Bronx and there they'll be safe. Use your walkie-talkies, use your cell phones while they'll still last. Notify, uh, leave a message so that when parents call, say that your children are located hither and thither. And by 10 o'clock that night, every single child had been reunited with every single parent. Well, this was amazing because 80% of our parents in that school were World Trade Center parents. And they had either not gotten to work or they were not in harm's way when, when disaster hit. 
80% of those children's parents were World Trade Center parents. I went to Staten Island on a boat on the, on the ferry. The ferry was so crowded they made us sit down and wear life preservers, yeah. which had not ever been used. Probably, so they, you were probably over the limit in weight. Absolutely over the limit. There were rumors that Dallas had been hit, Washington, uh, Baltimore, all kinds of rumors. And people were saying, who hit us? Who did this? Uh, even rumors about the Chinese Air Force, possibly. How long home. before you got back home? I didn't get home until the next day because they wouldn't let us back into Manhattan. And I had to sleep. I slept at the Marine recruiting station because one of them saw me and said, are you a priest? I had on my basic Father. black. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're covered in all that dust. And I said, yes. And he said, well, you look terrible. Why don't you come in and clean up and take a rest? And I said, please tell me what's happened. And so he filled me in, and I, I spent the night there. And the next day was able to get back into the city. What was that night like? Could you sleep at all? No, because my son lived in, in Washington at the time, near the Pentagon. And I was frantic trying to get in touch with him, and he me. Uh, I had talked to another son, and I talked to him. I was married at the time, talked to my wife. And uh, we couldn't find this, this other son. He called at 2 o'clock in the morning. The phone systems had opened up to an extent. And we just cried on the phone with each other, just in gratitude that we were alive and, and had been through hell. Do you have lung issues from it? Have what? Lung? I, I have not had the lung issues, although many of my contemporaries did. Uh, the Eva, Environmental Protection Agency told us that the air was fine. Yeah, what was that all about? Then they came back two years later and said, we, we didn't tell you the truth. It was no. very toxic. No kidding. So many of our people had the lung ailment, and so many were afflicted with cancer, including me. Oh, really? A, a virulent form of, I had a virulent form of prostate cancer, which was a direct result. Of being of, there. Uh, did you work, there. did you go, how many days before you got back to the church? Got back to the church in three days. And started, because you ended up working at the St. Paul's next door? Not immediately, but I was, I was, we were all there constantly. St. Paul's, that night, on the 11th, the policemen and women, firemen and women, rescue workers came in and took over that church. They thought, oh, we know this is going to be an open and friendly space. They knocked the door down. They put up porta potties out front. Oh. Parishioners came uh, illegally, set up barbecue pits, oh. and began serving these guys and these women hot dogs and hamburgers. Love it. So by, in 24 hours, that had become a respite center, and it continued for the next 11 months. I thought you were going to say that it was the church where they all the uh, firemen hung their boots on it while they changed their boots it, out. It was the church. That was the church. So for our listeners, uh, the firemen and the rescue people would come back, first responders would come back, change their shoes out, and they would hang their old boots on the iron fence there. On the old iron fence. And there were 300 pairs of boots. And then they never came back. They never came back. They never came back. And they left them there because I saw them. We went up there to see yeah. Ground Zero a year yeah. later and saw them. And it is just a overwhelmingly emotional. It is. It is. And St. Paul's Chapel became that, too. We had 40,000 visitors a, a, a week for almost a year. It's because crazy. it was the only place to grieve. The city didn't provide a place to mourn. Uh, the church was a safe place. People knew that they could cry there, and no one would try to take that away from them. 
So it, it became quite a place. You think it was Providence that you ended up in New York when the towers you, fell? You know I do, uh, in so many ways, because I was able to contribute immediately and right on target with a number of things. Uh, uh, and we don't need to go into what they were, but my, my pastoral skills, uh, what I have been through in my own life, which has not been without struggle, I mean, I was able to just uh, walk right into the situation and do good ministry. How'd you decide to leave and come back? To Arkansas? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, this problem I have, my, my brother's a physician in the state. Oh, your joint pain? Uh-huh. And I called him one day, and I, he said, that's, that's serious. And he said, you're going to need some medical help. And I said, and I cannot get it where I am. I'm trying. He said, why don't you come here? Why don't you just move over here? And I'll navigate this world for you. So oh, the next somebody morning, say I, that to me, please. I called him back the next morning and said, I think I'll just move. He said, well, that's a great idea. <laughs> that's the Reverend Dr. Stuart Hoke of Trinity Cathedral in downtown Little Rock. In a moment, another perspective on 9-11 and its aftermath from a recent Up In Your Business guest, a Muslim Pakistani Sophia Saeed, now leading her life in Little Rock, Arkansas. She's executive director of the Interfaith Center at St. Margaret's in Little Rock. Please stay with us. Arkansas Flag and Banner is proud to underwrite Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. McCoy began this broadcast with the intention of offering a mentoring platform for those with an entrepreneurial spirit. Carrie McCoy, founder and president of Arkansas Flag and Banner, believes in paying knowledge and experience forward and developed this radio show as a means of doing so. The biographies, life experiences, and wisdom of her guests would likely go unheard if not for this venue. Rarely do people open up for an hour to an audience about their life mistakes, triumphs, and pitfalls. This unique radio show allows the listener intimate access into the stories of prominent leaders in our state. I'm Adrienne McNally, manager of the Arkansas Flag and Banner Showroom and Gift Shop, located on the first floor of the historic DeVorean Hall on the corner of 9th and State Streets in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. Open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5.30, and Saturday, 10 to 4. Sophia Saeed was born a liberal Muslim in Pakistan. She met her husband, Kaim Saeed, the night before their arranged marriage. Three months later, she joined her new husband in Utah where he was studying to receive his doctorate. In Pakistan, Sophia and her father, both Muslims, were excited that Sophia had been accepted to a prestigious Catholic college there. Now in Utah, she found herself living amongst and attending college with Mormons. The cultural commonalities were striking, and her view of the world grew larger. When she first moved to America in 1996, it was an easy transition a safe place for Muslims. But since 9-11, things have changed, and so has she. Having once been taught that women should be quiet and invisible, Sophia has decided to step into the limelight, not for herself, but for her children and for her community. After moving to Little Rock so that she could follow her husband, who got a job teaching at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, Sophia attended and graduated from yet another school, the Clinton School of Public Service. In 2012, she became an American citizen. Today, as the executive director at the Interfaith Center located at St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, this Muslim woman is spreading the word and reminding us to love thy neighbor, a common theme across all religions. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table 
the Arkansas Humanitarian of the Year, Miss Sophia Said. Thank you so much, Terry. That is very generous bio. That's not even all of it. You were the valedictorian of your class, first Muslim woman to ever give the speech. That's true. Uh, graduated cum summa laude. But today, when you say you work at the Interfaith Center as the executive director, what does that mean, and what do they do? So, interestingly, Interfaith Center is actually a product of um, several people working together to promote peace in our community. What we do is we try to reduce the fear that exists between different religions, the prejudice that people of different faiths feel towards each other. And as you know, I don't need to tell you that it's increasing because of the current social and political environment. So what we do is we try to bring people of different faiths together under one roof, normally where they wouldn't find themselves, uh, help them connect with each other, learn about each other's faiths, uh, learn how to respect each other's differences as well as the commonalities and build relationships with each other. Because after all, we're all living in a nation which is highly diverse, not only racially, but also ethnically, religiously. And if we don't know how to live with each other, like if we don't know how to uh, have interfaith cooperation, then we cannot work effectively with each other. So it increases our own uh, productivity. It increases our impact on the communities to learn how to coexist. And that's what Interfaith Center does. And then I have lots of different kinds of programs which I would love to share more. You were born in Pakistan, and uh, you call yourself a liberal Muslim. I'm a Muslim, yes. I Yes, people call me liberal Muslim. Mm-hmm. You, your father taught you to drive? Yes, my father taught me to drive. He's very proud of me. And you were uh, very good in school and thought because your father was pretty liberal that you would follow like your follow in um, the footsteps of other family members and go to America get, to get educated. But he kind of planned something different. <laughs> yes, I saw. So that's where the gender uh, roles differed in our family and in most of the families. Like I did see all my uncles and many male members of the family coming to U.S. for their higher education. So I aspire to do the same. But... Um, Back then, at least, it was only male members of the family, not females, not girls or women. But you did go to college. I did go to college in Pakistan. But only the males got to come to America to get educated. Yes. And you thought that would happen to you. But instead, your father did what? Instead, he got me married. He arranged my marriage. That is fascinating (laughs) to me. Some Americans cannot understand the idea of an arranged marriage. Really? But well, that's, that's the foundation of our society, back. one of the foundations of the society. It's a very common phenomena. I know. T- yeah. Tell us about how it happened and how it came to be and why you like it, why it's acceptable. I've had other friends who've had arranged marriages, and I've heard what they've had to say about it. Uh, I think our listeners would love to hear what, how it happened. And so you see, marriage is not a union of just two people. It's, it's coming together of two families who are going to be interacting a lot with each other and raising the next generation of kids together. So it's important that families get along as well. So the way it happened in my case, which is true for many, many, many Pakistanis, if not most, most is that uh, my family started looking for a suitable groom for me 
and they searched like all the other fam- many other families are searching too uh, in uh, and they were looking for a family which is similar to their own background and a family which has to offer what i wanted they knew what their daughter wanted they knew my personality they knew what my goals and aspirations in life are so they were looking for a groom who is able to fulfill what i was looking for i wanted somebody who's highly educated who would respect a strong and independent woman who would let me study after my marriage and who's going to the united states because i wanted to pursue higher education in united states so lots of proposals would come and me and my parents would discuss them together things that would work for them or things they would reject and things that i would reject but eventually and very soon we found this proposal which we all agreed upon because it has to offer the things that we both were looking for me and my parents so i said yes and uh, my husband was in uh, england at that time he was doing his masters so i never got to meet with him or visit with him um he came uh, to pakistan a couple of days before we got married So yeah but we're still married happily married actually and um, it works great Did they ask him what he wanted and he said I want to all the all the same things I guess you just mentioned I am sure his family was looking for what their son likes in a girl and the things that he hopes for in a girl and that's why the whole institution of arranged marriage works because you know it's not based on love because you can fall in and out of love it's based on personalities it's based on a level of commitment and responsibility and when you make that commitment towards each other the bride and the groom and the families then do you, you do your best to uh, work hard in it and uh, make it a success and who wants things better for you to be the best they can be than your parents and who knows you better than anybody else than your parents that's true and they had experience in the institution of marriage as well i mean i did not know before getting married that what are the things which will become issues after 5 6 10 years of marriage you know dishwashing or laundry we don't even think about those things when we think about marriage we think about love but when parents are thinking they're putting thinking about all the practical things as well so Yeah and plus it's a joint decision i mean people have this misconception that arranged marriage means your parents are going to pick somebody for you and get you off to married it's not like that i mean you know educated families they talk to each other and uh, they decide together how do they correspond with each other through emails and pictures back and forth i mean how do the family the parents i oh, assume the parents, arrange I thought, yes how do the parents arrange it they met so we are distant distant family relatives so they met with each other several times and they communicated with each other through common um relatives and then they go so visit each other then they visited then, each other they visited me did, uh, did you meet your husband's um mother and father before you met and him? ancestors and aunt all of yes. them before you met your husband <laughs> yes yes i'm sorry americans <laughs> but i i would love to pick all of my children's um <laughs> life mates <laughs> I, i i love your explanation of it i think it dispels a lot of wrong ideas people have about it um but now you're married your family and you have chosen a man that is going to be educated in America that was important to you because you wanted to come to America to get educated so you've moved of all places to Utah and you're going to school 
getting a degree, I believe, in economics. I loved uh, being there. It was an easy transition to America, starting from Utah. And then when my husband graduated from his PhD, then I decided to start school, which I always wanted to do. So I did my bachelor's from University of Utah. Well, I guess while you were there, 9-11 happened, didn't it? Yeah. While you were in Utah, 9-11 happened. Yes. How did that change your life? Well, actually, 9-11 changed the lives of most of the Muslims, not me, if not everybody. And in many different ways, the way we live, the the way we perceive the world, and the way the world perceives us, everything changed. One of the big changes, I'll tell you, that I never covered myself before 9-11. I started wearing my headscarf and my hijab after 9-11. Well, that was a time when a lot of Muslim women were taking off their scarves because they were being persecuted for wearing the headscarf. But um, for me, it was really important to embrace uh, my religion and my identity at that time. So I decided to visibly look like a Muslim. And I also thought it's our responsibility as Muslims to educate people around us about what our faith is, what are the true teachings of Islam. So I started a lot of uh, education or public speaking in local churches to tell people about Islam. I started teaching... uh, children at the local mosque because I also felt it's really important for our own children, Muslim children, to know the true teachings of Islam so they do not get uh, brainwashed or influenced by what extremists are doing, which is not Islam. So I think um, for the first time after 9-11, I started thinking about myself. Who am I? What is my religion? Why am I Muslim? What Islam teaches me? So it was a journey of self-discovery, self-reflection. And as I learned about my own faith, um, in a more intentional way, I started also spreading that awareness to the people around me. And yes, it changed everything, Um, especially when you have children who are going to school and uh, who look brown, who are immigrants. I mean, you know, you are facing issues day in and day out. So as a re- rebellious streak in you, you decided to start wearing your hijab. Yes, that's true. That's kind of like you said, the opposite of what everybody else did. I remember I used to teach in the Sunday school at mosque, and when I was going, uh, my husband said, uh, please don't uh, cover your head. And I normally never used to. I would only cover it on Sundays before going to mosque. And that Sunday I said, no, I will cover my head. And I remember when I was driving to the mosque and when we were stopped on the red light, the car next to me, the person rolled his window down and he yelled at me to go home and I don't belong here. But I think the more hatred and fear I saw in people's eyes for Muslims, the more resolved um, I was, the more determined I become to embrace my identity and tell them that, no, that is not right. You have to know the real Muslims. So yes, that was the rebellious streak. And then it stayed with me. I mean, you know, it's been years now that I've been wearing headscarf. You know, that you could say the same about the extreme Christians that bomb abortion clinics and blow up government buildings in the name of, of, of Christianity. It's the extremist that if you were an outsider looking in, you might could say that about Christians if you were not if you didn't know that that's not their religion either. And Terry, that's true for every religion. I don't think extremists have a religion. Extremists are there in Judaism, in Christianity, in Buddhism, in Islam. These are people who have extremist tendencies. 
it's not the religion that makes them extremist i don't divide people as christian jewish and muslim i think they are good people and they are bad people and they are good people in every faith and they are bad people in every faith when you said you uh wanted to go and tell what the muslim faith was and renew your faith and to, and then you felt it was your responsibility to go talk to children about what the muslim faith was what did you say the teachings were what were some of the main points you said Well Islam basically in essence the word Islam mean peace and it's a religion of peace and a religion of love that's how I learned it that's how I practice it and anything good that I do it comes to me from my faith anything all my contributions to my society to humanity are because of my faith because it inspires me to be a better person every single day and I thought that is what needs to be communicated out the positive contribution of islam and muslims the message of hope growth and opportunity and peace and non-violence that it gives out which is unfortunately um not given a lot of uh, limelight or voice nowadays and islam is not a religion that started on 9/11 it's a 1439 years old religion and muslims christians jews they used to live in peace and harmony with each other muslims have created amazing civilizations and art and science and history and it seems to me nowadays that all that is forgotten just because of the actions of a few or whatever the ge- geopolitical conditions are so i thought it's really important that people look at islam in its entirety as a religion as sister religion of judaism and christianity and that's uh, what i taught and also i think it's important that we see each other as humans and connect each other at human level so that is another thing we do through interfaith center as well that you know uh, let's look at the common human element in each other love that neighbor your husband's taking a job in little rock arkansas he's working at the university of arkansas medical sciences kaim said and you moved here in 2007 He graduated in 2007, gave the valedictorian speech, come home. He says, all right, honey, that's over. We're moving to Little Rock, Arkansas. You said, let me get the map out. Where is that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I did know that this is the Clinton state. <laughs> yeah. And so you move here. Yeah. And uh, how to, tell us a little bit about that. So I actually wanted to pursue my PhD after my bachelor's. and um it was initially it was a bummer for me that oh we're moving to little rock and there is not a place where i can do my phd but Did you then, hear she said bummer okay i just want to know that <laughs> okay go ahead so, she's very american all right but then when i did my research on little rock i found clinton school of public service which is essentially um going to teach me the same things or at least the work i'll do after that would be same so i was actually pretty excited that we will see american south um i had traveled a lot in america i traveled from coast to coast and border to border i've seen uh, not all but more than 35 states so i but not the south part so i was really excited to be in american south and then clinton school of uh, public service gave me an opportunity to do something uh, uh different than phd but with similar outcomes so i was very excited i came here i pursued my masters both my children were in middle and high school and um, i worked with some local organizations as an economist but started more and more focus on interfaith work because my children were growing and i thought there is a need 
to teach people interfaith cooperation the skills of interfaith cooperation i'm sure it helped them cope at school well i hope so that's how i started my work but i hope so uh, one day my son um, came home and uh, at dinner table we would share stories of uh, what happened at the school so my daughter who's younger than my son and um, who's spunkier than my son uh, she told me that uh, mom um Askia's friend called him a terrorist again today and I asked my son what did you do about it honey and he was like no mom nothing you know people don't know and it happens every other day no big deal about it and we were sitting at our dinner table and it really struck me that you know I'm doing so much interfaith work and look at my child he does not know how to respond to somebody who's calling him an extremist and the kid is born and raised in America he does not even know what an extremist is So I asked him that you know you should have responded with I you know that this is not what Muslims are. And my daughter said, "Mom, don't worry. I took care of it." And I said, "Really? How did you take care of it?" <laughs> and she said, "You know the child who called Azkia a terrorist? He was a Hindu." I said, "Okay." So I said, "If you think our God is mean and tell us to go and kill people, your god is so cheap you can buy it off a uh, retail store's shelf so i caught right back at him if my god is mean his god is cheap and i was looking at my two beloved children that one of them does not know how to respond to a bully who's calling him an extremist and the other one is actually turning into a bully <laughs> so both of them lack the communication skills that they needed to talk about faith So that's how actually some of my work started. I thought it's really important that we teach our young children and teenagers how to talk about faith. And how can we do that if they never talk about faith to each other? So I started this program which is called Multi-Faith Youth Group of Arkansas back in 2011 and it's a group of teenagers, high schoolers who are from Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist faiths and no faith. and they come together twice a month they have interfaith dialogue with each other they talk about world issues they talk about extremism and terrorism they talk about gun violence they talk about tolerance and love and patience and they do service projects together so they start the group in ninth grade they graduate in 12th grade it's been going on for years now we have graduated uh, several high schoolers who have gone to different amazing universities but the key thing is we are creating the leaders of the future who know how to communicate with diversity deal with diversity how to respect each other's differences and live in a positive healthy inclusive community thank you that's wonderful uh how do people get involved in that how do they learn about it so if we go to the interfaithcenter.org that's our website the interfaithcenter.org mm, all of our programming will be there multi-faith youth group is one of the programs actually the first program what was the name of the website again interfaith the the interfaithcenter.org so the interfaith center has something called love thy neighbor what is that love thy neighbor is an interfaith prayer service that we started 8 years ago on the anniversary of 9/11 because me as a muslim i've always felt on 9/11 that there is a, there's tension in the air 
for everybody. The Muslim community is literally, I'm not exaggerating, scared to go out because anybody can say anything to them. People are scared of Muslims that day and Muslims are scared of the larger community and that needs to change. So um, eight years ago, we decided that on this day, instead of people being scared of each other and not interacting with each other, let's do something in which we can bring people of different faiths together under one roof and we can pray together and we can sing together and we can eat together and we can get to know each other and build relationships. I love that. Praying, singing, eating. Is there dancing? Um, As of now, we haven't practiced dancing in the prayer service, but this is our eighth year and it's uh, intergenerational service of music wisdom and prayers and uh, like you said you always hold your uh, festival each year around 9-11 because it's a fearful time for muslims but it's not just muslims that come to your prayer service i have been to it once years ago and you had speakers from several religions that year who are your participatory religions so Interfaith Center has participation from Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhist, Baha'i, um, people who we call uh, spiritual seekers who do not adhere to any one religion, Hindus, of course, atheists, agnostics. So we welcome everybody and all these religions and leaders from these religions have been a part of our work. And you named it Love Thy Neighbor. Because because I think that's one common golden rule common to all the different world religions. Every religion teaches you to love your neighbor. That's a wonderful mission for you to have. My dream is that whatever we can do to protect the legacy of the American dream, to protect the values and um, the freedoms that this nation offers to its citizens, And we can only do that if we learn how to live with each other, how to interact with each other, how to communicate with each other. We cannot build walls among each other. We need to learn interfaith cooperation to create inclusive communities. Sophia, thanks for joining me and my listeners. This has been a great interview. I have enjoyed meeting you and talking with you so much. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio show, and choose today's guest. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.